you have a Bible, I would ask for you to open it up to Exodus chapter 9. We'll soon be reading uh, beginning in verse 13. Christians, as well as most people in this world, want assurances of the things that are going to happen in their lives and want assurances that, that the things that are going to buy or the commitments they are going to make will turn out for their benefit. We love guarantees for this reason. That's why everyone in here has Amazon, because no matter what comes to you, you can return it, and it's almost totally and completely free for you to do so. It's not like that with everything else. We often want to know if the person we're marrying is going to turn out right, if the places we go to school are going to be good for us, if the car we're buying is going to be a lemon or that it will be okay for us. This leads Christians to prayer. It leads them to ask God for assurances in these things. We love to have assurances. I knew a couple when I was much younger who were slightly older than me but married. Uh, this was before I was married. And, and they used to pray over everything. They would go shopping and pray like, should we get the sourdough or the whole wheat? Lord, lead us, right? Green toothbrush, blue toothbrush. Lord, lead us. Help us. I don't, I don't know how often they got answers. I know that I couldn't pray like that because I would just say, Brie, you know, the Lord is leading us to get some steak today and, uh, and run us dry. Uh, so even though it seems pious, it does feel like that, that is a bit heavy, but th- there's a reason why people do that kind of thing. It's not because it's necessarily commanded of us in Scripture to pray over every single little decision that we make, but I think that there is this honest desire in most people to want assurance. We're a limited people. We're finite. While the word is firmly and faithfully been given to us. We can understand it. We can read it. There is much about the future that we don't know. And as much as we're tempted to pray over small things and in the large scope of things, very insignificant things, the question of assurance certainly then turns at some point in time to large and looming things. I doubt there are very many Christians here that have ever actually wondered, am I saved? What will really truly happen to me when I die? And at least part of our answer is with full and sincere confidence that if you have truly trusted in Jesus, if you placed your hope in him, if, if you trust that he has died for you and that in his resurrection your death has been taken and your life has lived in him and, and you have placed yourself in his hand and you trust the things that have been said about him in the Bible and you understand what he has done for you, that you will be saved. Easy peasy. We know, frankly, in our experience of life that we can begin to ask questions, not about the content of faith, but about our own faith. Do we have faith? Do we truly believe the things that are being said? Do we have enough belief? Do we have the right belief? What if, if the heart is deceitful above all things? I've been lying to myself. Now, the first and best answer to all of this is obviously just, just trust Jesus. He's incredibly merciful. He's incredibly gracious. Trust in him. Pray about it. Hope in him. Think that he is good to give you an answer to those questions. Those are some of the most obvious answers that we get. Seek him. Press into him. Rest in him and trust in him. Those are all positive answers of things that we should do. But I think that we can also attack that question from a little bit different perspective Not just in the positive, but in the negative. What ought you avoid? What shouldn't you do? Last week we talked about this sort of easy interpretive grid from the beginning of the book of Exodus. 
a hermeneutical approach to understanding the entire message of Exodus right now, 1 through 10. Don't be like Pharaoh. You know, if you see Pharaoh doing something, don't do that thing, okay? Avoid that thing like, with pun intended, like a plague. So we will be using that again. Pharaoh was warned and warned and warned and warned about what was going to happen, and still he cheated he lied, he bartered, he denied, and here God is going to start bringing the hammer down on him. As we then walk into this sort of last triad of wonders and signs, Pharaoh is going to start to become unraveled. He's going to bounce from confession to confrontation and back and forth in a matter of verses. He has no idea whether he's coming or going. He gets no help, for not even the gods of Egypt can save him. Because he's not just fighting a god, not just one of the gods of the pantheon, but he is fighting the god above all gods, the god who has created all things. And in fighting him, he will lose more than he can possibly bargain for. So today, as we go to our scripture, we have plenty of it to read this morning. Let us read of this losing battle of Pharaoh and the greatness of our God. If you would, read with me from Exodus chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my hand out and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and on beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been seen, had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field, in the, all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch my hands out to the Lord. The thunder will cease, 
and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants, so that the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on the earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and old. We will go with our sons and daughters, and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had, as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, 
And he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be a darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. This is the word of our Lord. We're asking about assurances saying, hey, maybe it would be better if we viewed this from a negative standpoint. What can we do to lose our assurance? Let's, let's turn that question around. It's not so much how can I know that I'm saved, but rather, let's ask the question, how can you be assured of your destruction? The first thing I would like to point out is that one of the best ways to be assured of your own destruction is to assume that the worst is gone. Assume the worst is gone. Pharaoh is incredibly content to make sure that he focuses on only what is before him. He will plead with Moses to make whatever is happening to him stop, whether it's flies or frogs. And he doesn't ever seem to think that anything worse is going to come. This is what the warning in 914 is about, that all of my plagues are now going to come upon you. It's not that, that he was going to repeat the ones that have happened before, but he's saying, you, you think that you've experienced hardship, and you think that you've experienced might and power from my hands, but Pharaoh, you have seen nothing yet. He is no longer going to hold back. This is a dire warning for Pharaoh if he understands what's being placed before him. But still, it doesn't seem like any of this gets through. Pharaoh is only able to see what is behind him, only what he has experienced. This is why Moses says to him in 930, as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. Indeed, these three plagues, the hail and the locust and the darkness, are a brand new and much forward step in what's been happening. The past things may have been annoying, they may have been difficult, they, they may have even physically hurt in terms of the boils. And certainly they pointed to a greater theological judgment and significance than the realities that are there. But they are nothing like what is about to happen in these three plagues. Hail is clearly a picture of future judgment, and it stands even as judgment itself. I remember being in a, a theology class, and there was a gentleman who was there, he was from Georgia. Um, he was saying that, you know, when you have kids, you, you've got to talk to your spouse and make sure that you understand precisely how you're going to ask the difficult questions that your kids are going to ask. And for whatever reason, um, I think that this is the right tack to take him and his wife had decided, when our kids ask us a question, 
we're not going to lie to them. We're not going to soften it. We are going to tell them the truth and the answer, age appropriate, right? But we're, we're going to, we're not going to soft pedal things. We're going to talk to them about it. And he's driving through the east side of Atlanta one day. His little girl, six or seven, asks him in her sweet little southern voice, Daddy, what's hell? He says, okay, I made a pact with my wife. As best he could, for six or seven minutes, he's explaining what hell is to his little girl. At the end of that time, he, he thinks to turn to her and ask, Darling, what made you ask that question? And in her sweet little southern voice, she said, Well, Daddy, the man on the radio said hail was falling on the other side of Atlanta. And uh, it was only then that he realized that she was just asking about hail and not hell and that the southern accent has done him in again. Uh, So, nevertheless, he wasn't far off. Hail is a picture of hell. It is a picture of the very judgment and the wrath of God, of the strength of his arm and the destruction that will come to all people who do not repent. Isaiah 30, verse 30, uses it this way. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. In Deuteronomy, or excuse me, in, in Psalm 18, David asks that in his distress as he calls upon the Lord, he cries to his God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry reached his ears. And what did God do? David says, out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through the clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. This is also found in the book of Revelation. It is a picture of the judgment of God. And even here in this book, although it's a picture of judgment, the judgment is incomplete. There is this parenthetical reference that, well, some of the plants were going to make it because they they weren't fully developed yet. They can still grow and still blossom and still bloom. And so what does God do? He brings locusts. And what the hail has left, the locusts will consume. Locusts, one of the most deadly and awe-inspiring things in the ancient world. And yet even that is not complete. There's a picture, a transition, where they are going to finish what the hail has started, and they are a picture of what the darkness will bring. They blot out the sun, but then the sun disappears altogether for three days, and finally Egypt becomes what it has symbolized for so long. It is a tomb. Darkness, so dark, it's felt. Don't know exactly what scripture even means by that. I don't know how you feel darkness, but something sank down into the very bones and the marrow of the people of Egypt, that the darkness was so close in upon them, was so near to them that they could feel it. They didn't get up. They didn't move. It was nothing less than a tomb. The people of Egypt were there, stuck in a state of death, always dying, but never dead. Yet, Pharaoh acts like the worst has already come. This is meant to be a picture for us. As Paul would tell us, these things aren't written down for the Egyptians. They're not written down for the Hebrews. They're written down for us, for our understanding. The curse that exists upon all humankind is not simply death, but it's a death in which we are dying, but never fully done away with, always surrounded by darkness. 
And we, especially as Christians, cannot simply stand before others and even before ourselves and say that the reason why we follow the commands and the instructions of God is because it's just a better way of life. It's true that it is. God doesn't just give us commands because he wants to see if we're going to follow what he says so that he gives us things that will make our, our lives worse and our lives harder without providing any goodness behind them. We don't believe that that's true. We do actually think that the commands of God were written for our good so that we might live joyful, happy lives filled with love. There's more to it than that. We must do better than this, not only for others but also for ourselves because the penalty of hell is a real and ever-present reality and it affects every single person in this world. That is their fate that is the end to which they will go unless there is salvation given by God. Rich, poor, Christians escaping this come from every walk of life, and that was their fate as well. The last thing that you should assume is that the worst has come and gone. As though the pains and the struggles and the difficulties that you have gone through in life are the only things that you're going to have to face and that hell is not an ever-present reality. This is why Moses is told here in chapter 10 to pass these stories on to his children and to their children and all in Israel are to do these so that you might know of God, his wrath and his grace, his judgments and his kindness. Without a concept of hell, without knowledge of hell, without a knowledge and a belief in God's punishment and his wrath, you... You just don't know God. Escaping this, erasing it, sidestepping it, or just lying to people that the worst has come and better is coming is a recipe to experience the very thing that you have rejected. It is the road to prideful sin. It is the easy, wide, paved road that leads to destruction. To be like Pharaoh, always thinking that the worst is behind you, is to deny the future and risk experiencing it. If you want destruction, assume that the worst has already gone. Secondly, if you want destruction, assume that your confession is good. This is a, a strange text in a number of places. Pharaoh two times in 9.27 and then later on in 10 confesses, says, I've sinned. And more than that, in chapter 10, not only does he confess his sin, but he, he asks for forgiveness. He looks at Moses and he says, forgive me. I need to be forgiven for my sin. Isn't this all we need to do, right? All we need to do is say that we're a sinner and ask for God's forgiveness. I mean, sure, Pharaoh, Pharaoh stumbles again, but don't we all? Let's just baptize him and get on with life. But again, this is the issue of our knowing that we truly believe. It's clear that Pharaoh has some sense of what's going on, but it's also true that Moses just isn't buying it. Pharaoh calls upon him and says, listen, I have sinned, especially in verse 27, chapter 9. This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Moses does everything that he asks of him. He says, plead with him, take these things away from me. Moses says, all right, I will do that. He goes out, but he looks, and before he leaves, he turns back and he says, but I know you guys don't actually fear the Lord. You might confess something that is good and true, but there's something that is wrong there as well. Moses 
has been cheated and lied to one too many times by this man. He has been once bitten, twice shy. So Pharaoh, when he's hit with another plague, calls Moses quickly back to him. It's a really interesting passage there in chapter 10. Quickly, he calls him back. Then Pharaoh hastily calls Moses and Aaron. As soon as the locusts hit, he says, go get them, bring them back here. And he again repeats to them, I, I, I have sinned. This is probably what Moses means when he writes early on that the Lord says, this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, back in verse 14. If you have an ESV Bible, you'll know that there's a little footnote there that says, on your heart. And given the fact that God has so hardened Pharaoh's heart, and that the issue of Pharaoh's heart is so central to everything that's going on here, what God is saying is, I'm sending my miracles, my wonders, and my signs on your heart. Whatever's happening is going to weigh heavy on Pharaoh. And indeed it does. Pharaoh turns. There's a lot that is good here. Pharaoh is being unraveled. He's being humbled. He's getting close to, to actually saying what he needs to say. He, he knows what's going to work. And so he hastily calls Moses back because he needs it to stop. Moses, just make it stop. And there's a lot of good that's going on here. He knows what the remedy is. He knows that Moses is the remedy. He knows that he is helpless to solve it. He knows that his magicians and his sorcerers and the sun god and the moon god and all of his other gods are not the issue, that this god is the issue. And Moses can make it go away. But his confession is quite apparently no good. It sounds good. Sounds right. But there are clearly problems with it. And these are not just problems for kings who live in the 15th century before Christ but for people here today. First, it's quite clear that he just doesn't fear God. What Moses says about him is certainly true. What he fears is what he is experiencing, not God. He knows that God is indeed the one bringing these pains upon him and that God is the one who's going to relieve them. But once they are gone, so is his fear. Even the way he talks about them Notice what he says in verse, 20, uh, in, in verse 28 of the ninth chapter. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. His problem in his head isn't God. His problem is the thunder, and his problem is the hail. His problem is the, the plagues. He doesn't understand that the problem truly for him is God. And so as soon as the plagues are removed from him, his fear evaporates because there's nothing to fear there. This is why Moses says, you don't, you don't actually fear the Lord. Secondly, not only does he not fear God, he continues to thwart God's instructions. He doesn't seem to take God's words seriously. He's very flippant with it. It seems to be a movement in the right direction. He comes in, hey, okay, I've had enough. You guys can go. But the first thing is he, you can't take your, your young people with you. He does this, I think, certainly because he believes that if they leave with their young people, there's nothing to bring them back. We need some collateral here in Egypt. You need to come back to us. I can't let you leave with your young people. Second time, it's about the livestock. We can't let you leave with the livestock. He seems to be broken, but he's not listening to what the Lord has said. The Lord's been very clear. My people need to be let go. All of my people need to be let go, and they need to go offer sacrifices to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh just can't get it through his head that he can't barter with God. 
He hears the instructions of God and he denies them. He tries to work around them. He tries to make them more palatable for himself. And this leads into the third thing, which is simply the fact that he's prideful and it basically assumes both of the other two things. This goes with the very point that God is making in his first statement as he opens the mouth of Moses and he tells Pharaoh in verse 17, you are still exalting yourself against my people. It is your pride. You are puffed up in your own mind and your own thought. Pharaoh refuses to listen to God because he thinks that he is important. Why wouldn't God barter with me? I'm the most important man in the most important country in the world. Why wouldn't God listen to me? Why wouldn't God make a deal with me? Because he's the Lord and you're not. After all, God's dealing with Moses and Aaron. Who are they? But he won't deal with me. It is hard, nigh impossible, to confess the Lord, to confess that he is Lord, and to think that you can be prideful among him. He is sovereign over your life. That's what the title Lord means. It is not simply a nice title, one that is largely symbolic and without teeth. I have nothing against the king of England, Nothing against the former queen. From all accounts, she was a wonderful woman. Glad to hear that. But let's be honest. Her title as queen, and now Charles' title as king, is largely, if not completely, symbolic. And the people might provide reverence for them, and they might, might you know, come to them and respect them and show deference to them. But that king and that queen have no real political or military power in their own kingdom. Those titles are symbolic for all intents and purposes. Many of us act like that is true when it comes to Jesus. That the title Lord is symbolic or something. It's not. You don't get to be the Lord of your life. He is. It is not simply a title. It is truth. So while it seems like Pharaoh's confession is good on his lips, it is rotted in his heart. And it can in yours as well. Don't suppose for a second that simply saying the right things is all that God needs from you. That you can open up your mouth and ask for forgiveness. That you can open up your mouth and confess that Jesus is Lord and go about doing the very things that you have done before. We do believe that you are saved by faith. But that faith must be a real, true, and living faith. That faith must indeed have purchase. Real faith acts differently. Yes, it can falter and fail. It can stutter and stumble. But it always takes God at his word. It allows him his place as Lord and walks humbly in grace. And because it walks in grace, it is always walking in repentance. It isn't puffed up and it is not exalted like Pharaoh. Would you court destruction? Please simply assume that a confession of your lips is good enough. Lastly, believe or assume that your gods are glorious. Assume that your gods are glorious. 1010 is probably the key verse in all of this. We read a lot. There's a lot of things going on here. I can't touch on all of them, but 1010 is likely the most important verse to understand both the, the plague of the locusts and then the plague of darkness. It starts out oddly. Um, I don't know why the ESV translates it this way. I think they should put it a different way. It's perfectly fine the way it is, but it, it, it sounds weird. Chapter 10, verse 10 says this. 
the Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. When we hear the Lord be with you, that sounds like a blessing, right? So we begin by, by sounding in our head like Pharaoh is blessing Moses and Aaron when he is clearly not. What it really means is if you think for a second, then I'm going to let you waltz out of here and take your little ones in tow with you. you you've got to be crazy. If you think that the Lord has shown up for you so far, you better hope that he's got more in store for you. You better hope that he really shows up for you because I ain't letting that happen. He's basically begging for God to come and destroy him. And I think that that makes sense of what he's trying to say. The second part of the verse then goes on to sort of reinforce this. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. There's a footnote there. You have an evil purpose before your face or evil is before your face. What most English translations have that mean is that you have evil intentions. I think what Pharaoh means there is you're lying to me. You're trying to cheat me. You're trying to deceive me. You want to leave with all your kids and you're going to leave and you're just going to go and you're not going to come back. Our deal was for three days. I need collateral. I need to know that you're going to come back. That's why I want the kids to say. That's why I want the livestock to say. But I think, along with ancient Jewish scholars, that this is not just and only about the evil intentions that Moses is supposed to have before Pharaoh or that Pharaoh thinks that Moses has. I think that this is a secondary threat in its own right because the Hebrew word for evil is the word ra'ah, which sounds a lot like the god Ra. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew hearing, it would sound exactly the same thing. So what he is saying is, not only is there evil intention in you, you're trying to cheat me, but what's more, if you think that you can leave, God's going to have to show up because for some reason, now, standing before you is the God Ra. You, you have, you've gone too far now. The gods cannot be happy with this. Do you think that this is just going to happen and they're not going to stand up and they're not going to fight for their people? There is a, there's a tradition that Ra, who later on gets kind of conformed with Amon to become Amon-Ra, is a god who stands up for the poor and the needy. If you consider that, this is incredibly ironic. That The reason why Pharaoh is calling Ra into this is because his people have been oppressed by this god. Look at all the horrible things your god has done to us. We are now the poor and the needy, and so Ra is certainly going to show up. Ra is certainly going to fight for us. I don't know if that's true. Certainly in, in the mind of Pharaoh, something has changed. Now Ra, now the God over all Egypt, the sun God, the one who looks down upon them all is going to show up. And what happens immediately after that? Some things do change. God brings locusts so dense and so thick that the land is darkened. Not just that you can't see the land, but the sun is darkened. You can't see it. And not only is the sun darkened, but then God says, I'll do you one better. I will completely and utterly remove the sun. The darkness that comes in the ninth plague is not just Michigan January cloud cover. That is a darkness. It's not just that it's getting late early. That is a darkness. This is, there is no sun. There is no moon. There are no stars. There is abject darkness. Pharaoh thinks that Ra is going to show up and going to fight for his people. He's going to fight and he's going to help. But Ra can't even get to the fight 
Ra literally disappears. God makes him go away. I know, guys, I know that there are other powers in this world, powers of earthly means, money, fame, medicine, science, and military. We've talked about that, that those can't save you. But neither can other gods save you. We are in a culture that exists in the wake of Christianity enough to know that most people think there's only one God. Because we think that there's only one God, the assumption is that we're all talking about the same God. The truth is, most of us are not. Your make-believe gods can be just your thoughts behind the one God. If there is one God who rules over this world, if there is one God and only one God that you need to get right with, you would better know who that God is. You can't get to make him up. You don't get to change who he is. You don't get to manipulate what he says to make him more palatable for you. He is indeed the triune God who is perfectly holy in all of his ways, who is merciful and gracious, yet simply will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. He is the triune God who makes himself known in these last days through the person of Jesus Christ, who has for us and our salvation taken on our sin and won our victory. Do you need to understand those things completely and fully? No. You're saved by grace through Jesus Christ. You're not saved by passing a test in Christology or theology like the Gnostics of old. But that salvation means that you are willing to humble yourself to what God has spoken and what God has revealed about himself. You can't make up a God who fits your perceived needs and desires. No God of your conception is going to be enough to fight the God of Scripture, the God of the Hebrews. Whether that God is Ra, whether it's Marduk, whether it's Baal, whether it's a God who simply embodies whatever your desired social order is or who thinks your thoughts after you, you will not win. You will go to destruction. Yahweh has been clear in this. I have allowed you to live, Pharaoh. I have gotten you through the things, even as I am bringing them on you. I have sustained you through them simply so that I could do this so that I could finally show you the fullness of my power, so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That is the purpose of these. So that there would be understood amongst all nations that there is no God quite like this God. So let it be proclaimed throughout all the earth. Yahweh is the Lord, and the Lord is Jesus Christ who has taken away the sins of everyone who believes. So, avoid destruction. Humble yourselves. Trust. Hope in the Lord, who has died for your sins and lives that you might live in him. Place your hope among the Lord, for God is merciful and gracious to all who truly call upon his name. Let us pray. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, and doing wonders? Who is like you, O Lord, among men? Who is like you, compassionate to the masses, 
wondrous and healing disease, saving your people from every calamity? We know of none. Therefore, we come before you alone, confessing humbly your greatness and our great need of you. Give us mercy in your love, that your great name might be proclaimed even over the utmost ends of the earth. We pray these things for your glory. Amen. If you would stand and